Yes. Now, uh, we're, today's our last Sunday in 1 Corinthians. And uh, you guys have hung with us. You've done really well. Give yourselves a round of applause. You've made it this far. Yes, you can clap for yourselves. Yes. Um, and uh, so before we start in this passage today, though, I want to remind you that we are going to be uh, starting something I'm really excited about in January. And we'll be starting a series in January called Confronting Christianity based on a book by Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin by the same title. And really, it's a, it's a series on just answering questions that skeptics might have and that many of you, I'm sure, probably have yourselves. So somebody could be a Christian but still have a lot of the questions we're going to be talking about in January and February and beyond. So I'm excited for that to kick off in early January, and we have lots of other really good stuff planned for the spring semester as well. Um, and then uh, just remember, we are having church high school service next Sunday. So next Sunday will be kind of like a special Christmas-themed something. We're calling it our Christmas party. But um, we'll have uh, just a short message next Sunday, and we'll have some, like, you know, really good food and some Christmas-themed worship. And uh, Caleb's going to plan some interactive games and whatnot next, next Sunday as well. Did I say Wednesday or did I say Sunday? I meant to say Sunday if I said Wednesday. Next Sunday will be the Christmas-themed morning. So um, be our last one for this, this semester. And then... Um, so today we're getting into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I've titled this Gospel Stewardship, and you'll see there's different areas that Paul's going to talk about how we are to steward ourselves in a gospel-centered way um, in the body of Christ. So you'll see how this plays out as we go through the passage. But 1 Corinthians 15, which Caleb did a great job talking about last week, it's a beautiful chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. So chapter 16 is one of those that you might skip over. In fact, I think when I went back and looked at my notes from years, years ago, we taught 1 Corinthians like a long time ago here in the Outback, and I just like skipped over 16. So that's my sin. I own that. I shouldn't have done that because there's actually a lot of really good stuff in this chapter, but it might be one that you skip over because it just looks like a bunch of, you know, greetings at the end of a book. But it is really important because whenever you examine these closing words, you're going to see what community will look like when people live out the reality of the resurrection, which is what chapter 15 was about. So the first question that Paul's going to answer is, how do we steward money? Yes, you chose that Sunday to show up. The Sunday we talk about money. It's exciting. Uh, so verses 1 through 4, the whole passage is not about that, so don't worry. But verses 1 through 4 definitely is. So read with me in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is telling the Corinthians that he wants them to set aside a little portion of their income, their, mo their money, um, and collect it so that he doesn't have to make them feel guilty when he shows up and take up a collection when he arrives. So he says, little bit by little bit, he says um, he wants them to take up an offering, not for himself, but this is for the church that's in Jerusalem. And it says he wants each person to set aside money. So when he arrives, he and some other people are going to carry that gift to Jerusalem. So in that time, 
didn't have banks really. You couldn't just put money in a bank and, you know, write someone a check. You had, or, you know, Venmo someone like today. Um, you had to carry the money with you, and roads were dangerous. Uh, there were thieves and robbers that would lurk in the shadows, so it was dangerous. You needed, like, a, an, a posse, an entourage to, like, carry a gift like that long distance to a, a church in Jerusalem, and that's what Paul plans to do. So the early church met on Sundays, since that's the day that Jesus was resurrected, and on Sundays, they had this tradition. They would take up a collection for the poor. So much like you guys, we pass around the offering basket on Sundays, and you guys give towards these compassion kids that we sponsor overseas. And they would do something similar. They would give money to the poor each week. Now, I think we, we tend to give more readily whenever we see an urgent need. Whenever you see an urgent need right in front of you, you say, this is a person that needs me to help them you're more apt to give someone that's in need, right? Versus just seeing like just this faceless institution that's asking you for money. Um, oftentimes churches get labeled as like, yeah, there's always begging for money or asking for money. And you just see it as like an institution that you're like, well, I, don't, I mean, it's just an institution. But when you see a person that's, that's needy in front of you, you're more apt to, to give that to that person because you see an urgent need right there before you. Of course, this is a great topic for today because we'll be leaving this service and going over to the building next door and seeing people come in, many of whom have some really difficult circumstances. And, and we're not trying to just pity people. We're trying to just meet a need and hopefully not just meet the need physically, but also meet the needs spiritually. And so there's a twofold uh, purpose for this. Now, he says they should set it aside, this gift aside, on the first day of the week. And this is in keeping with the Old Testament idea that they should give of their first fruits or give off the top of what you make. Now, now why should we do that? Because I personally believe that, that Christians should give in that way. And here's a, a goofy analogy for you to think about as it relates to why you should give of your first fruits, give off the top of what you make. Now, think about whenever you have a new pack of gum, like a brand new pack of gum. And whenever, if, you're, if you have a new pack of gum and you have some friends and you open up your gum, right, um, chances are you feel super generous. You're like, hey, anybody need some gum? You guys all have stinky breath. Y'all need some gum. Here, take some gum. And so you start giving away gum because you have a lot of it at your disposal. But have you ever had a situation happen where you have your last piece and it's just one piece you have left and you get it out and you put, about to put it in your mouth and your friend goes, ooh, can I have a piece of gum? And you're like, it's my last piece suddenly you don't want to give your last piece of gum, do you? Why is that? It's all you have left. You feel stingier, don't you, when it's your last piece, right? So think about that in relation to money. If you make a couple hundred dollars, let's say I don't, you guys have some jobs, I'm sure. If you get a paycheck for 200 bucks for whatever you've done, then um, if you give from the, the first fruits off the top, you feel a lot more generous, typically. You're like, hey, I got $200. I can give 20 bucks to the church or to a certain cause. But if you spend all your money and you, you know, you do some things, you spend some money, you go out to eat, and you got like $25 left, what happens? You're not giving that to the church, right? You're not going to do it because it's, it's like, I got, I only have a little bit left. I can't do that. And so when you give it your first fruits, there's something in you, I think, psychologically, where you're like, I can do this. I can, this, this is not that hard. I can do this. You give of, of your last fruits, you're less likely 
to do it. You don't feel as generous in those circumstances. So I think here's the, here's the big idea. Um, you want to give when you are most likely to have a good heart attitude about it, okay? So in addition, if you give, if you give first to the work of God— because his work should be first priority for us. That's why I think you also should give of the first fruits. Now you might say, well, I'm just a student. I don't make very much. So why should I give anything to anybody? And I would just say it this way. If you don't give now, you probably never will. Because you might not make very much right now, but you also don't have many bills to pay. Uh, The adults in the room can understand this. When you get to be like our age, I think my budget has like 50 or 60 line items in it. Like this is where the money has to go. All these little things, right? And right now, you probably don't have that situation for yourself. So if you don't give, if you're not a giving person now, you're probably not going to be a giving person later when you have, yeah, you have some more money, but you also have a lot more bills to pay, a lot more bills to pay. So if you, if you get in the habit now you're more likely to give later on in your life. That's just, that's just a fact, I believe. Now, Paul says, each of you is to put something aside as he may prosper. So that means he wants everyone to give. That means rich, poor, middle class. Everyone, Paul is saying in this church, should give towards this cause to support the church in Jerusalem. And he says that phrase, that phrase, as he may prosper, that means Give according to what you make. So give in accordance with what you make. Now, Paul doesn't say how much they should give, but he says that they should all give. And you might ask, what about the whole concept of tithing? You know, many people talk about that. Are we required by God to tithe? Well, the word tithe, that's from the Old Testament, and that was a command for Israel, and it was to give 10% of their income. But listen, that was just the base of what they would give. If you add up all the other kinds of giving in the Old Testament for Israel, for each person, they were commanded to give closer to 25% of their income. Now, that was in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we're never commanded to tithe in an official way like that, but we are commanded to give. And God cares not just that we give, but how we give. He cares about the heart. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if someone is a cheerful giver, they're probably not going to ask questions like, okay, how much am I required to give based on the law, right? They're not going to ask questions like that. They might just see a need and be excited to meet that need. That's a picture of a cheerful giver. This passage talks about the heart. That doesn't mean that if you feel stingy, you get to stay that way and just say, well, you know, my heart's not really in it, so I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know, a person who just gives and does the action, but my heart's not really in it. So I don't be a hypocrite, so I'm not really going to give. Like, that's not how that works. I would say to you, no, no, you give, do the action, but then you can still confess your heart attitude along the way. Pray for your heart to change. As you do the action, pray for your heart to change. You'd truly be a cheerful giver. Most people that know me really well, 
uh, my family would probably affirm this, is that, listen, I can be, I can be stingy. I can be one of those people who just, I, I feel security when I have money saved up, and I don't just want to release it and just, that's my personality. But guess what? There's also a lot of sin that's like tied up in there. It's intertwined with sin. I can't just say, it's just my personality. No, I can't say that. Because I can, um, yeah, part of it is like, I think, how I was raised. But I've got to un- let God untangle those things in my heart and, and be someone who is, is not going to idolize security in finances or in money. And for some of you guys, you may not find security in saving. You find security in spending. Like, you want to see the fruits of, of the money. You want to see, like, something result from it. And so that might be what you're idolizing, but I tend to idolize the other direction. I tend to idolize the saving over the spending. But I can still spend some money too, and that can still be an idol for me as well. But we've got to allow God to change our heart as we become someone who is more open-handed, someone that gives in the way that God might call us to. So Paul wants the people to give to the church. So in Corinth, so this church in Corinth can give to another church in Jerusalem, and you see, people, people give to churches, and churches sometimes give to other churches. We do this here at TBC. So whatever uh, comes in here at TBC financially, we automatically give 20% of what comes into our church to global missions, which is astounding to me. I'd never heard of a church doing that until I came here to work at TBC. At times, we give it to missionaries. Sometimes we give it to churches that we support other places like Rwanda or uh, maybe uh, maybe Ukraine, somewhere like that. And so we give to churches. We also give to people that are, that are goers from our congregation. And I know whenever you see, when you come to our campus here at TBC and you see like, you see property, you see buildings, you see programs, you see full-time staff, um, it's difficult to see how everything that we have here comes from people just donating money. That's really a scary thought when you think about it. That everything you see here on this campus, all the people, all the full-time staff, the facilities, the chairs that you're sitting in, every single thing that you see was basically donated to you, to this church, by people who feel compelled to give to the church. And that's, I think whenever you see this established institution, it's, it's hard for you to imagine that. Like, where did all this come from? Like, when you guys eat, like breakfast on Sunday mornings, that comes from people who give generously to this church. Uh, September and October is a weird month for us because we have to do my, I have to crunch my budget numbers for high school and prepare for the January through the next year. And it's always weird because I go, I'm like, man, this church gives a lot of money to our high school and junior high ministry, and we're blessed by it. Very generous very generous. When I ask other youth pastors, like, hey, they're asking, like, how much is a church budget for a youth, a youth ministry? And I'm like, well, it's this amount. And they're like, no, we're not even close to that. We have a very generous body and a generous church that wants to do ministry and use the money God's given us, the resources he's given us, to do ministry. And that's a blessing. But it all comes from people that donate out of this cheerful giving attitude to the church for the work of ministry. Now, Paul's words here about giving are simply an extension 
of what he's been saying throughout the letter. We talked about spiritual gifts in earlier chapters, that we should use our gifts in the body of Christ. And he's also saying here, you know, your giving attitude should also be shown in your financial resources as well. Look down at verse 5. So how do we steward opportunities? That's next. Verse 5, it says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now this might seem like, if you think of 1 Corinthians 16 as being the most useless chapter in the book, which you might think that, then these words, 5 through 8, might feel like the most useless words in the chapter that you also feel like is useless, right? Because you're just talking about, like, travel plans. What can you really get out of that? Well, um, we can still learn a lot from these, these verses here, I think, uh, because Paul had made some plans, and I can't go into all the details of his plans had changed based on certain circumstances, but uh, can't get into all that this morning, but I'm time for it. But here's the big idea. When Paul saw the church in chaos in Corinth, committing all kinds of sins, he went and he visited them. And then he wrote letters to them. So he cared, Paul cared, like a pastor, Paul cared enough about the church in Corinth to confront them, but he did so in love. So even though he had some, some hard truths to say, he, he somehow maintained this posture of care for the church in Corinth. And he says, I, I hope to spend some time with you. Now, if you go back through, just go back through your mind, like all the hard things Paul has said to this church and all the sin struggles that they had as a congregation, and you could think that maybe someone like Paul just felt like he was done with them. Like he's, he's thinking, I've got to explain the most basic things to you guys, and I'm just kind of up to here with the church in Corinth. But right here, like a good pastor, he says, I hope to spend some time with you after all the things he has said that are difficult to hear, he still can say that, and he wants to be with them. And they seem to have received his confrontations well. You know, sadly, I think we rarely see this in the church today because usually if we need to confront sin in the church, even if we come along and we do it lovingly, people usually just, they just leave. They, they just go somewhere else. Um, this is the, the essence of consumer Christianity, the title of our series. You know, in the past when I've had to maybe lovingly confront either a student or even a leader, uh, sometimes they will say, you know, things like, well, you know, what I do in my personal life is not anyone's business, and um, stay out of my business, stay out of my life. And I would just say that's not, that's not true. If we're all in the body of Christ, then that means we're, we're connected to each other. That, that sin affects the whole body. And I'm not talking about like just struggling with sin. I'm referring to someone choosing to live or walk in sin or even celebrate sin. You know, some people think that Christianity should look like this. It, it's just, you know, I, I attend church to get like a, like a pick-me-up, like a shot in the arm so I can get through the week with a little bit of Jesus and listen, that's not, that's not the Christianity that's found in the Bible. 
Like, we don't see that in letters of Paul. Paul has this unique way of expressing deep love and affection for those to whom he's writing while also delivering some hard and difficult truths. And we see this balance with him when he addresses these churches. I think we can all learn from this as leaders. So for myself, for our our volunteers, our interns, um, we have to be loving as we confront sin. But the people in the congregation have to also be more open and willing, I think, to be approached in these ways as part of being in the body of Christ. And so we don't run away and just escape when those things happen. We see it as someone showing care and love for us so that um, we can grow in Christ and be sanctified in him. Look at verse 9. It says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, Paul says that he will stay in Ephesus because a wide door for ministry has opened for him, but he also has many enemies that are coming after him. And this is such a great statement that Paul makes here in verse 9. Because when Paul looks at the world, he sees two things. He sees persecution, yes, but he also sees possibilities and opportunities. He doesn't allow the persecution to keep him from the possibilities that God has laid before him. I think in our, in our 21st, century American, uh, 21st century American mindset, if we encounter opposition, we think it must not be God's will. If we, we see any roadblocks in something, we, we think, well, it's, it's not God's will because I, I'm getting these, these uh, obstacles. And we think it can't be God's will because there's something that's in the way. That's not how Paul seemed to think. He saw, he would see persecution, but he also saw possibilities. And he doesn't allow for the persecution to keep him from the possibilities that God has laid before him. Now, we, th- we tend to think of people and places in two ways. Either they're totally close to the gospel or totally open to it. I think if you, if you think of certain friends that you have at school that may not be believers, you probably think of it like this. Oh, that person or those people, like they are totally closed off to the gospel. And you might have some friends that you're like, no, no, they're pretty open. They're pretty open. But listen, most people are a bit of a mixture of both of those things. You know, some are, you know, have a mixture of like they seem closed, but they're also can be fairly open sometimes. There's a a writer named Andrew Wilson that says this. He says, most mission fields combine elements of both, meaning closed and open to the gospel, with the doors for gospel advance wide open, yet with threats and dangers everywhere. It is helpful to know that this has always been true, and that for Paul, the opportunities outweighed the opposition. So when you think of your own life, your circumstances that you're in, do you think of do you see opportunities or do you only see opposition? You've got to be willing to see both in the way that Paul does here, I believe. So the biggest mission field for many of you is probably your school. Maybe, a, maybe you play on a club team or something like that that's also a, a possible mission field for you. Um, and I'll say if you, go to, if you go to a private school, listen, it's still a mission field. You know it's a mission field. You know it is. Now, don't allow persecution, whatever place you're in to keep you from the possibilities that God wants to call you into. Look down at uh, verse 10. This is how do we steward people. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, 
So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Again, we usually skip over sections like this, but what do we see here? But Paul has great affection and warmth for the people with whom he serves. They seem to have this great friendship. You can learn a lot about friendship by reading the letters of Paul, just the warmth and affection he has for certain people in the church. You know, I think of um, every year, we talk about this a lot around here, but I always love how when I, during impact season, how I will see people in this room that never knew each other before impact began, and they get to know each other through, through an impact team possibly, or maybe impact camp, being in the same room together, and they become friends. And I love whenever it's like, you're, you're, you're different schools, and I see deep friendship grow, and you're in a different school than someone else. I love that, because it, it, it says to me, you see something really important in the body of Christ, is that friendships can form around the gospel. It may not be the same team, the same school, but they can form because of what Christ has done. And you can see deep affection and friendship with someone else because of that. Some of my greatest friendships have come through ministry or gospel ministry. Next Sunday, I'm actually going to miss next Sunday's party in here. I'm going to miss you guys because I'm driving to uh, Irving to, pick, to, pick, to go pick up some friends of ours from England to bring them back down here to, to Temple to hang out with us for a few days. And um, it's a friend that I made over 20 years ago on a mission trip to Zimbabwe. And so that's a person that I, I consider a deep friend of mine. I've got a friend in Arizona that I met on a mission trip when I was probably 14 or 15 years old, and we're still friends to this day. He spent time with our family a couple years ago down in Austin. So I have some deep friendships because of the gospel. And gospel has a way of bringing people together that might not otherwise ever be in a friendship together. And I think Paul sees people like that in the church. Look at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So remember that guy Apollos? We talked about him in the early part of the series. He was this great speaker, and some were comparing him to Paul. And they were saying that Paul wasn't as gifted as Apollos was. And so how does Paul respond? He still values Apollos in his ministry. He's not jealous. He's not saying like, you know, yeah, ignore that guy Apollos. He's not a very good speaker anyway. He doesn't play competition with him. He sees value with Apollos. And he urges Apollos to go visit Corinth. He probably is thinking, you know, hey, Apollos, these Corinthians, they, they love you. They respect you. Go visit the Corinthians in Corinth. At this moment, Apollos isn't able to go, but he's encouraging him to go. Then in verse 13, Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Now, we could do a whole sermon on like that, just that, that little verse right there. And this phrase, act like men, that simply means to act with courage and strength as you obey God. It applies to women as well. It's, it's like this call to maturity, like act like a mature person is what he's saying here. And then notice in verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Those first four commands here, without the fifth one about love, will lead to disaster. Remember, love is like the, the circulatory system of the body. It should permeate everything. And I think Paul shows that here. Look at verse 15. 
Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and whoever that guy's name is, because they have made up, they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And again, we see his affection and his friendship with these people. And then look at verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, which is also Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not going to do that here, okay? Just so you all know. I know some people are like, can we do that? Can we, can we be biblical and start doing that here? No, we're not doing that at the That was a cultural thing back then, all right? Verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So Paul closes this letter with two concepts that define the Christian life. It's grace and it's love. It's amazing he can say that, considering how hard-hitting this letter has been. But this letter started with grace, and it ends with grace. So may grace and love abound in your life and define your walk with Jesus as well. You guys are going to head to your breakouts, and they finished really early 